Welcome to episode number eight of CorpCast. I'm Peter Laddig. And I'm Kyle Gay. And today we're going to be talking about controlling stockholders. Kyle. Thanks, Pete. Today, like you said, we're going to be talking about controlling stockholders. Conveniently, I don't know much about this, so I'm hoping you can enlighten me. Uh, so let's start really simply. What is a controlling stockholder? Well, for those of you, before I begin, for those of you who may have seen the uh, Delaware State Bar Association seminar on May 28th of this year. This will be a little bit repetitive, although we're going to expand on a couple of things. But, um, you know, in general, a controlling stockholder is somebody who certainly, in most instances, owns greater than 50% of the outstanding shares. Uh, But you don't need to be a majority stockholder. Uh, You can be a controlling stockholder if if there are allegations of domination by a minority shareholder through actual control of corporate conduct. And just, you know, by way of background, the seminal case in this area is Kahn versus Lynch. In that case, there was a 43% stockholder that actually made threats against the unaffiliated directors. Like, you need to do what we say because we have the most shares and things Sounds like, like that. Sounds like a great idea. Yes, I, yeah. Then not, not surprisingly, that was uh, viewed poorly uh, by the Delaware courts. Um, and so recently there have been, when I say recently, you know, in the past uh, six or eight months, there have been a couple opinions that have come out addressing the idea of a, corp- of a controlling stockholder. I know we'll talk about those, but... Just first, why does the distinction between controlling or non-controlling matter in these cases? Well, it matters because it it affects the standard of review that the court's going to apply. And so if you can show that there is a controlling stockholder and that there is a transaction between the controlling stockholder and the company, uh, the court is going to... uh, hold of those allegations in general, rebut the business judgment rule at the pleading stage and get you into the entire fairness land, which uh, will require development of a factual record before the case can be disposed of. And so uh, it, it can really affect uh, the way the case is litigated for the most part. And I guess we know that it was in the news with the Cornerstone opinion, is that correct? Right. So Cornerstone and Zhang Pin were decided at the same time by the Delaware Supreme Court. And they were, uh, it's a different issue than what we're gonna talk about today, but the question before the Supreme Court and Zhang Pin and Cornerstone was, assume that you do have a controlling stockholder, that there's a transaction between the controller and the company, does the plaintiff have to plead non-exculpated claims against the independent directors in order to keep them in the case. In both cases, there was a section 102b7 provision in the company's charters. Uh, As most of you probably know, 102b7 provision eliminates monetary liability of directors for breach of the duty of care, among other things. Uh, Notwithstanding that provision, uh, the court in uh, Cornerstone and in Zhang Pin held that Although there were no claims against the independent directors of each company that fell outside the 102b7 provision, so an instant for, in other words, there were no duty of loyalty claims, there were no bad faith claims against those directors, both courts, based on one of the many opinions in the Emerald Partners versus uh, Berlin uh, cases, 
said, I can't dismiss this independent director at the pleading stage, notwithstanding the fact that there aren't any uh, claims pleaded against him that wouldn't ultimately be exculpated because MO Partners says you can't do that until you get to the fact and develop a record. Um, the Supreme Court said, no, that's not what the law is. You can dismiss an independent director even where there's a controlling stockholder and frankly, regardless of the uh, standard of review that you're going to apply, uh, if there is a 102B7 provision and the complaint does not assert a well-pleaded, non-exculpated claim against that independent director. Fair enough. So let's talk about one of the aspects of or one of maybe the characteristics we could say of a controlling stockholder that you mentioned um, in the beginning, and that is board control. And several of the cases that recently came out addressed this issue. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And that's one of the reasons why this topic is interesting, at least to me, because there were four cases decided in the fall of last year. Um, in Ray KKR Financial, in Ray Crimson Exploration, in Ray Sanchez Energy, and in Ray Zhang Pin. And the first three cases, KKR, Crimson, and Sanchez, the court there, when analyzing and determining whether there was a controlling stockholder, focused very heavily on board control, and specifically board control with respect to the actual transaction at issue. In Zhang Pin, however, Zhang Pin actually doesn't even reference the previous three cases and focuses more on you know the intangible qualities uh, and particularly latent control and some things like that and, and so uh, that's why it's interesting because they were all decided in temporal proximity to each other mm-hmm. and it's it's like a uh, one of these things is lot, not like the others which is I think interesting from an analytical point and, and really a, you know a practice planning point too how are you gonna make sure you fit in but I'm happy to talk about these cases, Kyle. Okay. <laughs> so I can talk about KKR. Uh, it was an interesting case. KKR owned 1% of this company. There was a management agreement between an affiliate of KKR and the company. The company actually had, it was KKR Financial. It actually had no employees. All of the uh, day-to-day operations were done and accomplished by this KKR affiliate. And basically what KKR Financial did was provide services in connection with some of the broader things that KK, KKR, the, you know, the big equity group, did. And, and they would you know, um, facilitate some of the transactions and they made money that way. There were 11 directors, only four of them were beholden uh, to KKR. And at some point, KKR proposes a merger between a different affiliate and the company. The plaintiff argued, hey, this is entire fairness. KKR is the controlling stockholder here because it runs the day-to-day business of the company. Um, and, uh, and, and therefore, their control. And the court disagreed. Uh, and this was Chancellor Bouchard's opinion. He said, for stockholders owning less than a majority, the focus of the inquiry is on control of the board or ability to dominate the corporate decision-making process. And so even though KKR managed the day-to-day operations through that management agreement, that did not lead to a reasonable inference that KKR controlled the board. And I'll give you the big money quote here. In sum, in deciding whether a stockholder owes a fiduciary obligation, 
to the other stockholders of a corporation in which it owns only a minority interest. The focus of the inquiry is on whether the stockholder can exercise actual control over the corporation's board. And in this case, was that question of control focused on any action of the board, or was it more focused on the transaction itself? It was, it was, it was focused on the uh, transaction. Um, it was more focused on that aspect of it. Okay. Um, and in that case, there were only four out of the 11 were beholden to KKR, and the court said that's not enough. So uh, the next case is the Crimson Exploration case. In Crimson Exploration, there was this company, Oak Tree Capital Management, and on 33.7% of the outstanding shares, an affiliate owned a significant portion of the second lien credit agreement, and three out of the seven members of the board were affiliated uh, with Oak Tree. Uh, the remaining directors were nominated after Oak Tree made its investment. Um, so in this case, it's a little different. It wasn't an approach from, the, from Oak Tree. It was actually management that decided, hey, uh, we need to pursue some strategic opportunities. They go retain a financial advisor. Management identifies a, a potential buyer. They go into discussions with them. The buyer is an unaffiliated third party, has nothing to do with the company or Oak Tree. After management gets these preliminary terms, it says, hey, Oak Tree, we got these preliminary terms. Um, and Oak Tree says, okay. And then uh, twice, during the negotiations, Oak Tree was uh, the company requested that Oak Tree convert or exchange its debt for equity. Oak Tree says, "No, thank you. We don't. <laughs> we don't want to do that." Uh, and near the end of the negotiations, Oak Tree demands that a registration rights agreement that it be able to register its shares after this transaction. The company and the buyer agree and say, "Sure, we'll 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 enter into a registration rights agreement with you." And then the merger goes through. I think immediately before or right after, um, the buyer then pays the entire second lien debt off, which was held mostly by Oak Tree. Uh, but there wasn't any allegation in the complaint that Oak Tree demanded that the lien be paid off. What did plaintiffs allege in that case? Well, uh, the, the plaintiffs said Oak Tree is controller and it received side benefits not shared with the minority and that a majority of the directors were interested in the merger or lacked independence from Oak Tree. Now, this is a Vice Chancellor Parsons case, uh, and if you want ever to get a nice list of all of the controlling stockholder cases, Vice Chancellor Parsons very helpfully puts one in here. Excellent. And it, it contains, uh, it's a chart, uh, and he, he lists out everything. But, you know, the interesting thing at the end is that he, he concludes, look, there's no linear thing to say if it's X amount of shares and this kind of control, then that's always controlling stockholder. I mean, he says there's no linear thought process that you can really follow here. We just have to sort of, you know, gauge each case. But again, court really, in this case, focuses on control of the board. And in, in fact, Vice Chancellor Parsons says, quote, these cases show that a large blockholder will not be considered a controlling stockholder unless they actually control the board's decisions about the challenge transaction. He also later says the focus in a control analysis is on domination of the board with regard to the transaction at issue. So it seems like the court rejected plaintiff's claim that essentially even though Oaktree received the side benefit that was in somehow evidence of their controlling nature the court instead looked at what did Oak Tree actually do to 
control, if at all. Right. The plaintiff's theory was the, the allegation that the that Oak Tree and the CEO undersold because they wanted to further their own interest. And the court noted, as it often does when that allegation is made, is that it doesn't make any sense that you would minimize the merger price because the higher the merger price, Oak Tree gets a third of everything. And that's inconsistent with the allegation that Oak Tree dominated management here uh, under the circumstances. Uh, now, notwithstanding all of that, the court uh, ended up said, saying he was hesitant to conclude that plaintiffs could not conceivably show that Oak Tree controlled Crimson. And so it was a very tentative conclusion by the court in that case that I'm not dismissing this control allegation under these circumstances. But it didn't ultimately matter to the resolution of the case because the court said, hey, Entire fairness doesn't apply. This is not a controller transaction with the company. The buyer here was a third party. There was no promise to prepay the debt and no reason why Oak Tree would have preferred a prepayment penalty versus a higher merger price because the allegation was, well, they promised to pay you the debt and so you were willing to take less for your shares. Okay. Um, but he, he said, I don't understand why that would be. Uh, that, uh, that made no economic sense. And also the registration agreement the court held in that case was not a unique benefit that was um, a material that was not shared. Okay. So we also have another case, Sanchez, to talk about. Right. So, yeah, Sanchez Energy. Um, this is much similar to the KKR case in that Sanchez Energy is a publicly traded company, but it doesn't actually have any employees. Its management is, or it's managed day to day by an affiliate of the Sanchez family. Uh, I believe it's Sanchez Oil and Gas, yes. And so the Sanchez family has a father and two sons. The father and one of his sons are members of the board. Uh, then there are three other directors. Um, and the other son, Eduardo, uh, is a founder and CEO of Sanchez Resources, which is a separate company that his brother and father have some equity interest in as well. Um, and that Sanchez Resources has a, uh, had a third party investor called AltPoint. Um, now, uh, Resources basically had interests in developable and undeveloped uh, acreage, in the uh, in oil reserves and potential oil reserves, and this we do not have enough time in this podcast to describe the technical nature of the transactions. I'm thankful for that. Yes, it, <laughs> but basically, what happened was uh, Sanchez Energy money bought out is alleged to have bought out AltPoint from resources and then resources contributed some of its acreage into a joint venture with Sanchez Energy. Okay. So Sanchez Energy got some interest in some acreage it didn't have before. AltPoint got bought out of Sanchez Resources and um, and so that's sort of how it ends up. It's a very, very complicated uh, set of transactions. But at the end of the day, the, that transaction was approved by the Audit Committee of the Board as required by the Audit Committee Charter. Uh, but in this case, this is actually a derivative claim alleging that demand was excused. Court held that the first prong of Aronson 
uh, wasn't satisfied because there were insufficient allegations that a majority of the directors were not independent. And then in the second prong analysis, the court holds uh, that Aronson was not satisfied because the Sanchez family was not a controlling stockholder. So what about those the aspects of the Sanchez family made the court determine that it was not a controlling stockholder? Well, again, this, the Vice Chancellor Glasscock in this case says, quote, the actual control of corporate conduct means actual control over the corporation's board of directors in the transaction at issue. And the court states that the view that the minority stockholders are controllers only where they exercise actual control over the board was reaffirmed in KKR and Crimson, which we just talked about. And the plaintiffs in that case admitted at oral argument that the Sanchez, uh, the dad and the son, couldn't remove somebody if they were ended up being a dissenting director. And there were nearly 80% of the stock was in the hands of independent stockholders. So, um, and finally, uh, there wasn't a well-pleaded allegation, according to the court, that the Sanchez family was involved in the, or controlled, the actual negotiation of the terms of this complicated set of transactions. So do these cases tell us that management control isn't enough? It really has to be board control? Well, if you follow, follow this line of cases, they very much focus on actual control of board conduct related to the very transaction you're talking about. And that's what all three of these cases really focus on. But Zhang Pain that we'll talk about is quite different. Is that right? Yes, it's it is very different. Um, so in in Zhang Pain, there was uh, Ju. Uh, he was a chairman and CEO. He owned seventeen point three percent of the common stock. Now in this case, unlike the cases we talked about, in fact. Uh, the other cases don't really focus on any of the public filings that these companies made. But in Zhang Pin, the company's 10K stated, our largest shareholder has significant influence over our management and affairs and, and could exercise this influence against your best interests. And it went on to say, our controlling shareholder and our other executive offices and officers and directors are able to exercise significant influence over our company, including, but not limited to, any shareholder approvals for the election of our directors and, indirectly, the selection of our senior management and mergers and acquisitions. Uh, further, this concentration of ownership may delay or prevent a change of control or discourage a potential acquirer from making a tender offer or otherwise attempting to obtain control of us, which could decrease the market price of our shares. So in this, this case, there were five members of the board. There were three that were independent. Zhu makes an offer to purchase all shares for cash, says, I am not a seller. The company gets a special committee together with the three outside directors. Um, the financial advisor seeks out additional offers. Uh, Zhu will, won't raise his bid. The financial advisor, uh, and this is where uh, this case, I think, starts to depart, at least factually, from the other cases, uh, aside from uh, the 10K issue. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, special committee gets its financial and legal advisors. Zhu says, I am not raising my bid. Uh, the financial advisor then determines it cannot uh, render an opinion on the offer and quits. Okay. So there's no, there's no fairness opinion in this case. 
But the special committee ends up approving the transaction because they're worried that Jew will pull his offer and they don't want to delay anymore. Um, there is at least a non-waivable majority of the minority provision in the, in the merger agreement, and, but only 51.3% of the unaffiliated stockholders approve. So it barely reaches the threshold there. Um, but what's, so aside from those unique facts here, um, the other unique part of this is that the court doesn't discuss KKR or Crimson at all. Uh, it also doesn't discuss Sanchez, but that's understandable because Sanchez was actually released the day before. Fair enough. <laughs> um, and also the court doesn't focus on board control, but, more, but on the more broad term of control of the corporation. And in footnote 27, the court rejects the argument that the plaintiffs do not allege that Zhu used any power to force the special committee to accept his proposal. And in this case, he, uh, uh, the, this is Vice Chancellor Noble, and he cites uh, then Vice Chancellor Strine's discussion incisive of Lynch and the premise that the controlling stockholder possesses such power that the entire fairness standard must apply uh, in order to try to neuter or protect the minority against what the controlling stockholder might do. And the court instead focuses on the latent and active control and says latent control is the power to elect directors or approve transactions even if not exercised and active control is, is control over the actual decisions. And what evidence did the court find for uh, Zhu's actual control? So for active control, he said, apparently possessed active control over Jiangpin's day-to-day operations. The company relied on him to manage its business and operations uh, such that his departure from the company would have had a material adverse impact. And so despite the fact that his ownership uh, at only 17.3% was so much smaller than the typical controller, the plaintiffs had pled enough indicia of domination sufficient to raise an inference that he actually did exercise control over Jean Pin. And now I know that both KKR and Sanchez are two of the cases that we talked about. They have both been appealed. So what do you expect from the Supreme Court as far as guidance on, in, on those issues? Yeah, well, I think we are going to get some guidance on this. Uh, the, the cases are not being argued together like Cornerstone and Jean Pin actually were, but they are being argued just a couple weeks apart. And the Supreme Court has, um, in the last few years, shown a tendency to uh, group cases of a similar nature or raising similar claims together, not necessarily all decided at once, but maybe decided on the same day uh, so that the, the opinions can reference each other and be coherent together. And so I think we're going to get some guidance here in, uh, on whether this focus on actual control over the board with respect to the particular transaction at issue is the right way to look at this versus the more general and broader way that Zhang Pin looked at it. Uh, Zhang, that issue in Zhang Pin uh, was assumed to be correct for purposes of the, of the appeal on that separate issue we talked about at the beginning. Right. Um, and the, but the court, I thought that was interesting, and the Supreme Court said, we're assuming that Zhu uh, is a controller here, but we're, we're making no statement that we agree with that conclusion ultimately. I think that was probably just 
making sure that everybody knew they were, the Supreme Court wasn't affirming that decision. I don't think it's necessarily fair to assume that the Supreme Court thinks it's wrong. You know, I think that would be probably reading too much into it. So under the current law, you know, you're looking at a new case where there's an allegation, there's a controlling stockholder, is there, um, you know, should you be focusing more on the KKR Sanchez line or more towards the Jinping incisive line? Well, you know, I think you, I think you probably have to do both. Um, certainly, uh, you're going to want to know who your judge is. <laughs> if you're in front of uh, Chancellor Bouchard or Chancellor Parsons or Glasscock, I think you would probably want to steer more towards the actual control uh, points. Obviously, if you're in front of Vice Chancellor Noble, you have to be aware of Zhang Pin and be prepared to uh, address the more broad thing, uh, the more broad aspects uh, that Vice Chancellor Noble focused on. I don't know that we have a good uh, idea about what Vice Chancellor Laster uh, would think about this, although I assume that you know when you leave his courtroom you would know. But uh, <laughs> but I think you know I think you have to be prepared for both because you know I don't think that there's anything wrong necessarily with with Vice Chancellor you know Noble's reasoning per se. Now I think you can also make some arguments there that look you had a case there with a guy who you admitted was a dominating guy. And your special committee's financial advisor quit and wouldn't render a fairness opinion. I mean, that is a, a rare set of facts. I'm not saying that that was an outcome-driven decision, but you know, it's a rare set of facts. It's not really, hopefully, not repeatable very often. But you have to be, you have to acknowledge it because here's the thing: you know that the other side, and if you're representing a defendant, you know the plaintiff's going to bring it up. And the plaintiff's going to try to focus on that, and so you have to be prepared for it. And so at minimum, we can say that you know, the idea of a controlling stockholder, you're not looking at the numbers, you're really looking at the facts and the you know, levels of, or different methods of control that plaintiffs could possibly allege in their complaint. Uh, I think that, yes, that's right. You're gonna, it's, this is all very fact-specific, as Vice Chancellor Parsons said in Crimson. There isn't a straight line here that you can look at and say and check off boxes or there's a checklist. Um, it really is fact-specific, and you... And you uh, you do need to know um, uh, both both arguments. Well, thank you, Pete, for enlightening us on controlling stockholders and these recent cases. Thanks, Kyle. I was glad to do it. So if you have any questions, want to suggest a topic, or want to give us feedback, you can reach us at corpcast at morrisjames.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at decorpcast, where we will put links to podcasts and information relevant to Delaware law. You can get more information on our firm's blog, DelawareBusinessLitigation.com, or be the first to know about content by subscribing to Corpcast through iTunes or any podcasting app. Thanks, and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you.